Welcome to the Idle Book Club for January 2017. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. And on this episode, we are discussing Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Uh, next month, we are discussing Silence, a Japanese novel by Shusaku Endo that was recently adapted into a film by Martin Scorsese. Uh, but first, Wuthering Heights. Sarah, why did you pick this book? I mean, honestly, I picked this book because we were in a bookstore in New York over the holidays and it was a cheap edition <laughs> of it. But to give a real answer, uh, you have mentioned previously that you are underread in this this type of novel, in this period of novel. Mm-hmm. And the last time I read Wuthering Heights... I was in high school, maybe, and it's always interesting. I think that's pretty common. Yeah, I find to go back and, and reread these novels. Um, so what it, as a first timer of Emily, I think any of the Brontes. Yeah, this was my first Bronte of any variety. Yeah, this was a very surprising book to me. Um, I can't say I had any expectations um, because I, I really honestly, I've, I have never seen a film adaptation of this novel. I I really didn't even know the story of the novel. So it's not as though my expectations were confounded, but I suspect any expectations I would have bothered forming still would have been completely um, upended. Um, I was really, really surprised by how brutal I found this novel. Uh, The world it presents is fun, is kind of miserable on a fundamental level uh, in that its characters seem destined not to find any true version of happiness. And that is uh, reinforced by the character of Heathcliff, who is just an increasingly demonic presence in this world as he seeks to essentially ruin the happiness of everyone around him, pretty much all of whom are related to each other. They're, you know, these two families that he is seeking to ruin out of his perception that he has been wronged by the love of his life, Catherine. Um, I, I really like this book, but I have to admit at times it was hard for me uh, to get through because of how incredibly um, uh, demoralizing it can be. But it was, it was fascinating. It was, a, it was unusual and fascinating. I, want to point out that i finished reading this book prior to the inauguration whereas you were still reading it after the inauguration so that i think may have <laughs> affected the, the mindset a little there sure. uh, i i did find this book at, at times upsetting to read way more so than i remember it being when i was a teenager which makes me think that when i first read this book i just didn't understand didn't, yeah. didn't have a concept of what domestic violence or being trapped as a woman in literally trapped but also in in society being trapped i i i I, at that age i didn't really understand what that meant or what that could be and it felt more like a fantasy whereas when i read this book now as an adult it's it's easier to to understand like oh heathcliff is just an abuser and these women are all kind of stuck in this shitty world um yeah men too but women by even more means right people are essentially trapped in this book by every means they can be including emotionally physically in the case of women legally 
um, every every possible means you could imagine uh, to sort of bend someone to your will or keep them under your thumb um, financially. Uh, every, every means is employed in this book to a, to a sort of terrifying extent. This book is a, a, uh, a treatise against extremism or a treatise against uh, extreme extremism. Just in general? Uh, emotional extremism. Sure. Because Heathcliff is the obvious person, but also Catherine and her brother Hinley. And to a certain extent, I think you could argue the the Lintons um, in a reverse of the emotional extremism that Catherine and Heathcliff have, where they essentially don't have a, a filter, right, over their emotions, whereas the Lintons are incredibly filtered um so everyone is just kind of awful either because they express emotion unchecked or because they have no way of expressing their emotions and so this book is just like an argument against living that way and the the characters who eventually achieve happiness in the end if you think of it as happiness finally learn to come to the middle um despite the horribleness of their ancestor so in that way it's also just a generational novel it is very generational in and particularly in that the gen i mean it is generational to an extreme because it, it deals entirely with two families i mean one of the very odd things about reading this novel from a modern perspective is observing how extremely isolated um these families are and we know from the novel that that is not a universal state of affairs i mean the narrator lockwood speaks of you know being a sort of man of the busy world and obviously there are people born into situations in which they are not confined to two houses for their entire lives um but these people do live in a kind of isolation that you get the sense is not unheard of in this society and it it explains why so many um people from a certain time period and social class married within their families because seemingly that those were the people who they else? encountered right. <laughs> very and who were considered to be you know at the at the sort of social standing right. um, there's a lot of co- cousin marrying yeah. going on the one that i have which is a uh, penguin classics edition has a family tree at the beginning of the book and it was invaluable to me to keep all of the characters straight, uh, but also bizarre to see all the intermarrying coming out of only two branches. Doesn't help that the second generation have the same names as surnames, yeah, well, well, or first names in the case of Kathy and Catherine. Yeah, that's true. And then Linton, is right? A it's child. his first yeah. name. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. yeah. It's, um... Well, so do we want to do we want to quickly before we get too deep? Do we want to give a very very rough outline of what this book is? I mean, you know what the this the the rough story. Um, you know, this is the story of two families who live in houses in relatively cr- close proximity in England, the in the moors in England. And uh, the book tells the story of an adopted child of one of these two families who is named only Heathcliff, no surname or, or no given name, I suppose. Heathcliff serves as both. Catherine is the sort of most significant um, figure in that household. Uh, she is of uh, similar age to Heathcliff, and they grow up together with this strange sort of um, bond. Obsession. Of, yeah, kind of mutual obsession. Which, you know, she 
here's this i think she meets him she's not even in adolescence yet uh, right they're they're children i i think oh when yeah they 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 meet as they, children they certainly. grow up together and yeah. so ta- talking about how everyone is so isolated in, in this book uh Catherine earnshaw becomes obsessed with the first man who she's not of an equal status who she's not related to that she spends a significant amount of time with which i had never really thought about before yeah but their obsession just it's kind of just an obsession of convenience where it's like well we live in this isolated place and uh, it's either you or my brother so it's gonna be you and our love is unending now and the same thing ends up happening with i mean a similar thing ends up happening with her daughter um also named Catherine or kathy who also sort of becomes uh, develops an attachment, not in the same, not the same kind of manic attachment, but also develops an attachment to essentially the first male she comes in contact with, who she perceives as being um, of of similar social standing to her. I mean, it, in in the world of this novel, these people do not have a lot of choices about who they associate with and who who is even available. Um, for them to partner with. There's there's sort of this sense of um, fate, you know, that pervades the whole thing. You have these two families that are intertwined throughout and are kind of doomed to um, just spiral into ruin together at the hands of the one person who wasn't born in to either of them, uh, Heathcliff. Um, it's a strange story. It's a very modern... It, Is it? It is the fear of repeating the same mistakes that your parents made uh, to me seems like a very modern fear, but that's only because I'm living in the era you, that you I live. Modern? Yeah. I mean, I, think well, I mean that clearly it's not right. Yeah. Um, if anything, I, I think it is even more, I, I think it in this book, it feels even more palpably of the era. Um, there's a lot of suggestion in this novel that sons and daughters will, just intrinsically have you know have the qualities of their parents which seems very tied to ideas of the time about things like noble blood or aristocratic blood and and social class which people very much perceived as being inborn traits you know there's this reason some people are servants and 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 some people are are landowners or, or homeowners but it's also uh this nature versus nurture yeah right where Heath is Heathcliff an awful human being because he was just destined to be an awful human being or is he awful because he was so badly treated by primarily Hinley but society generally and you see something similar happen with uh, Hinley's son Harriton who Heathcliff essentially raises and even though Harriton is of technically of an uh I, I don't know if you would call them nobles but yeah. a, of a higher gentry, social gentry, I think right we can, we can uh, Heathcliff raises him in uh poverty as well as ignorance yeah. um and and that's just how he is treated and therefore he acts he mimics Heathcliff's very brutish behavior and, and is completely uh, set up to just continue Heathcliff's own awfulness and and only overcomes that when Kathy starts to treat him as a real human being instead of right at which point he is seen he is sort of um allowed to kind of return to the promise of his genealogy right essentially whereas uh, Heathcliff's biological son 
um, is, I mean, the, the, definitely seems to be the perspective of the novel that he never had a chance to amount to anything. Um, and Heathcliff sort of did all that he could to kind of prop him up, you know, to be as presentable as possible, but knowing it was in the bounds of basically a lost cause. You know, he's sort of weak and kind of effeminate to some degree, and he's presented as being um, just not of not of impressive stock. Um, but as to your question about um, Heathcliff and, and nature versus nurture, it's a good question. I mean, I think by the end of the novel, Heathcliff, to me, becomes has become such a figure of um, kind of Machiavellian brutality and, and uh, demonic kind of um, glee in what he's doing that he, he almost seems to exist. It almost feels as though he is like a comet who crashes in from just outside all of the rules of the world being presented to upend it and and to um, kind of wreak havoc upon it. I mean, it, it, he just, everything about how he's presented feels like he's just from some other plane. Yeah, he's he is definitely presented as something more elemental. And and that that is true of the way that the love if you want to call it love between Catherine and and Heathcliff itself is also presented, but um which is almost feral. Or, right, you know. and just in in the same way that Wuthering Heights itself is often described um this is something that we kind of discussed outside of recording this, but you have Wuthering Heights, which is described as this um, unchecked structure in the what is presumably the, the wilder part of the Moors in comparison to the house that the Lintons grow up in, which is has the sense of being way more regimented, not only in the lifestyle there, but also in its actual appearance, and it's in a much more idyllic part of the moors presumably um so you have this like warring nature versus civilization right um which if i'm remembering correctly from english lit right it was just a (laughs) a common theme of of literature at this period and and to some sense is still today but we don't have the same kind of wild uh lives that right i mean nature is less threatening to us right and isolation is less of an issue heathcliff the actions that he takes after catherine dies it starts to feel almost comical because he's so villainous and just doing things to spite people who not only at that point are dead but also they died under the most upsetting circumstances like Heathcliff has this vendetta against Hinley um and he continues to have this vendetta by mistreating Hinley's son but it's like Hinley is dead and before he died he was an alcoholic who had lost his wife and gambled all of his money away and basically had this horrible existence for decades leading up to his death and it's just like what more could you want to punish that man for? You know, you succeeded. That's in- what I mean by when I use the word demonic is that it feels like his vindictiveness and desire for revenge transcends sort of any mortal concern. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you say this is a generational novel. His 
vengeance is is literally generational. I mean, he he most of his efforts end up being expended on the children of the people he perceives as having wronged him. Right. This is the thing I'm generally curious about, and you can you can answer it however you like. You know, even if it's not a direct answer. What do you think? this novel means i mean you said it's a it's a sort of warning against emotional extremism and and i take that do you think it's just that i mean what do you here's a way of asking this and i know that we don't have any way to know this i mean maybe scholars of bronte do but what what do you think would be the motivation for someone to write such a novel i only ask because it does strike me as so unusual if you imagine emily bronte uh one living in a similar place so that that potentially is the connection to this story about these people who are incredibly isolated um and she also uh grew up under she seems some, like she had a fairly isolated life right yeah. um in in a similar uh type of area right and then so at the same time the the novels that are popular of this era are, are dealing with these Byronic heroes, these complicated, um, not brutish, but definitely like brooding. Br- right, brooding is the word that I want to use. Type of uh, male figures with Heathcliff definitely has aspects of you know before he just goes straight up mm-hmm. evil. Right, he could definitely, and I think is remembered often as a Byronic hero and not as a horrible monster by by many people uh for people who haven't heard the phrase byronic hero since they were in high school like me (laughs) remind me of the implications of that uh i mean brooding is is essentially just say uh male character referring to lord byron i assume right well it's named after um lord byron this like dashing but um roguish i mean han solo right Mm, is a legacy of the byronic hero um, and so Heathcliff is come clearly comes from that, right? But it's also this perverted. It's either a perversion or a realistic take on what a a man who is like that could potentially t- mm-hmm. turn into, okay, yeah. like an unromantic version of or that. Rather, or or maybe what the since that character is is a fictional trope, as you know, more than anything else, maybe what the full extension right. of that idea would right. be if taken to its extreme. You know, and, and I'm sure that Bronte scholars have examined all this stuff in depth, right? But those are two things that come to my mind. But, you know, the larger question of, well, why would you write this novel, which you could reframe as what is this the purpose right, of this? sure. That's a better way of asking. Book, and, and, and especially at the end, I think, you have Kathy and Harrington who... Uh, have experienced this generational trauma is what you could really call it. And um, based on everything that they've gone through, both physically and emotionally, you could definitely expect that they would either continue to spread that trauma or just not be able to ever recover from it. But the way that the, the novel ends, it ends with the two of them overcoming their shared trauma to create to create um a actual loving relationship or what we assume it seems to have the potential for that right and a healthy one at that so the you read these 300 pages of just absolute torment and at the end you realize despite 
all of that human sure. beings still have the capacity to not only continue living, but continue living in a happy way, which for me, when I was reading, I mean, I knew how the book ended because I had read it previously, yeah. but rereading it again and in, in this current, you know, political atmosphere, it has a hopeful message mm -hmm. that you definitely have to wade through all this awfulness to get through, but it's like the it has a point sure. in the end. Mm -hmm. At least it, it, it ended up having a point enough for me, but I could understand somebody reading this and not seeing what the point of having to go through Heathcliff's just actions. Right. You know, the ending of this novel, which which is hopeful, is by volume a minuscule, you know, percentage of the whole. And part of me couldn't help wondering, and may, this might be a completely you know, illegitimate um, supposition. But part of me wondered how much that was a product of a perception that readers of the time would not have been satisfied by this story ending in the dismal way that it essentially progresses for almost its entirety. The only thing that I know about how this book was received originally is that it was received, people were shocked yeah. by it and to the point where Catherine Emily Bronte's sister in a later introduction for um, one of the editions of Wuthering Heights kind of tries to tone down or excuse um, the brutality of the novel by saying that em because Emily Bronte lived this sheltered life that she didn't really by suggesting that she, Emily Bronte didn't really understand what she was writing when she wrote these like Charlotte Bronte. Sorry, I, yeah, sorry, what did I say? You said Catherine. Sorry, yeah. uh, it was too I was many like, Catherines. Man, I was thinking, I'm like, that would be weird to name yeah. this character. Char Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so yeah. Uh, and and I'm not an, enough of a Bronte scholar to right. to know how when this novel turned around to just being seen as a classic. I I mean I see why it's a classic because it is beautifully written. Mm -hmm. Um. And, you know, the thing that people remember after they remember the relationship of Catherine and Heathcliff is the description of the Moors. And, and mm -hmm. that's what people... No, it's very evocative. And, you know, I, despite how much I've sort of um, <laughs> indicated my surprise, I mean, I, I do think the, the sweep and arc of the novel is fascinating in its in how unusual I found it to be. You know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting, weird vision, certainly. Um, here, this is on a, a totally different tack. One thing I found really interesting, and this this might not be a very long discussion, I found the the portrayal of the sort of servant class of the novel to be very interesting. Um, obviously, the almost the entire story is told to us through, you know, by way of the perception of Ellen Dean, uh, the housekeeper. Um, she's our she's essentially our narrator within a narrator. She seems to tell the story in such a sort of disaffected way um, and does not hide the moments when she passes judgment. And that's kind of what I was wanted to bring up with the servants generally. I find it very interesting um, how much more pious and judgmental the servants are, particularly Ellen and Joseph, than the other principal characters of the novel. 
Um, did that strike you? It really struck me. Those characters are far more likely than others to be sort of to to reproach or you know to scold on moral grounds, um, even as they obviously are bound to subservience um, to these people. I mean, I, th- I think a lot of the portrayal of Ellen Dean is is we're not intended to always be sympathetic to her judgments. I mean, there are cases, there are a lot of cases where she is sort of overly judgmental in weird ways and then very explicitly not judgmental in other ways. Most particularly, she almost is, she is almost never judgmental with respect to her direct superior. She's judgmental of their actions, but never has anything um, to disagree with with respect to the actual power structure. So with Heathcliff, she can find him to be a sort of like, as she says, unchristian and um, kind of distressing person who does terrible things. But she also will sort of scold someone for not showing him proper deference or for sort of behaving under the power structure that he set up. It's a weird kind of contradiction um, that she embodies that I find really interesting. And you can see similar... um, patterns with Joseph, even though he's obviously a m- m- more minor character. It just reminded me that this book is being written in an era where the the delineation of social class was so much more important and that even though obviously Nellie has opinions about what her employers, right, are, are doing, she doesn't in any way want to... Um, like buck the the system and and that's very similar to you know a show like downton abbey right where you have the upstairs downstairs mm-hmm. c- classes and and even when the servants are critical um or disagree with their masters th- there is still this respect and um often i've noticed in literature that depicts these social structures it, it can be the people in the the lower classes who are almost as adamant about maintaining the social order as the people of privilege right. i mean um, they they have fewer other things to they're, they're, i mean unfortunately like they were given fewer other uh, kind of structures to find solace in in their lives because I mean in in large part because they simply had very little time I mean Downton Abbey presents a very rose colored um, it's also taking place what seventy years yeah Downton Abbey is much later I mean Downton Abbey but you know these people had very little to actually do in their lives other than their jobs which comprised their entire essentially their entire waking existence and maybe that explains how Nellie is able to remember so many. <laughs> Details, details from 20 years by the way speaking of joseph she bothers like doing the accent i right. guess that's a oh really good thing when you actually realize she's like impersonating him i yeah. guess in these stories to lockwood oh my god very can, good can we talk Mwah. about lockwood for a second sure because i again i remember that he was the one who the story is being told to but right. i i uh, didn't remember he disappears into the narrative sure um but he he's still a presence and i didn't remember that he himself also has commentary and um so we've talked about how this book can be very very upsetting but i also want to give it credit for being funny Mm -hmm. the lockwood character as he's presented is hilarious to me because he is such an asshole Um, i mean obviously not in the levels of 
what Heathcliff is, but he's so full of himself that oh, all yeah. of his little asides like really amuse me. Um, my favorite one being how uh, he thinks that Kath- Kathy should marry him, and at the right. at the end uh, when he leaves Wuthering Heights, he thinks, "Oh, you know what a what a fairy tale ending that would have been if she had <laughs> only realized how great yeah, yeah. she could have had it if she married me." Yeah, he's almost sorry about about it that he didn't do it. Just not on his own behalf, but sort of on behalf of like everyone around right. him. Right. Like, it's like oh, I listened to this horrible boy, story. Yeah. I did find the book to 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 the first I would say third of the book I found to be a lot funnier than anything the the book starts with a lot of um humor maybe in part actually to your point about lockwood uh lockwood's initial presence at uh at at wuthering heights there's this part that is astonishing in which he uh like leans his hand down on a table and sort of says like something to the effect of um regrettably i seem to have placed my hand in a pile of of cats or something and then like a paragraph later it says actually it was a pile of dead rabbits and it's like what what is going on here i mean there's crazy stuff that happens earlier in the book that as the book goes on it sort of becomes more more dismal and less less funny in that way but but especially earlier in the novel there there's a lot of just a hilarious description of what's going on yeah so, something that that reminds me of that always strikes me when i read books of this era is the distance between the descriptions that are on the page and what the the reader is is getting from that um so th- there always to me feels like uh, a chunk of something is m- missing in the writing where emily bronte is describing something and i'm reading it but there's something in that communication that is not present that makes the entire experience feel a little less concrete and the best example that i can give is anytime i um see these movies or sorry these books made into movies i'm always shocked by some of the literal details so there are scenes in this book where the implication clearly is that characters are kissing or they're being very um physical with each other but because the description is not is is very clouded and what exactly is going on in a scene you your own perception of it remains clouded and then you watch the movie adaptation of wuthering heights and people are like frantically kissing each other and it's just not in any way how it's presented in the actual writing um and i wonder if is it just that it's a different style or because we live in a modern era where movies are a thing um has modern writing become more literal to match film i I think there was a um a formalism that was embraced um prior to the 20th century that is just different to how we think about writing. I was listening to an episode of the podcast 99% Invisible, the most recent uh, episode they released at the time of this recording, and it was about the essentially the origins of the United States Postal Service, um, which at the time was a very unusual thing, the idea of a postal service that spanned um, such a great uh, area and, and connected sort of ordinary people and where people were able to receive newspapers. I mean, this was a, an unusual thing at the time. And um, the idea of the postage stamp 
took a while to develop. And when it did, people were suddenly able to affordably send letters, which was not something that people in the former colonies would have been able to afford. It was very expensive to use the postal service before um, postage stamps. And people had to be sort of taught how to write letters. And they were explaining in this episode when people were learning how to write letters as a matter of course, they were taught in to write in this extremely formal way where you would always start by saying Mr. Whoever or Mrs. Whoever. You would never use the first name regardless of how familiar you were with the person. You would always open by saying something to the effect of my deepest apologies for the poor quality of this paper or for the blotchy ink or for, you know, there's all these sort of layers of formalities that have to be penetrated before you can actually get to the heart of what you're saying. And I think often when you read fiction um, that is separated by enough time from us, a lot of these conventions that surely at the time were just a matter of course to us can feel um, you know, sort of labored or, um, I mean, it's often very beautiful and an evocative and, um, sort of wonderful in many ways. But, you know, when, when I just speaking as a terrible, ignorant, modern person, often when I read books older than a certain age, I do sort of struggle with what feels like a layer of abstraction between what's going on in my brain and what was surely going on in the author's brain. And you have to sort of penetrate that. Um, and sometimes that can be a great thing because it can force you to engage with what's written in an extremely active way, which is sort of the opposite of flipping through a sort of page turner that was written, you know, say a year ago in about as close to your own language as anything could possibly be. And it can just it can flow into you so quickly that you, you there's no friction and you're you, right. The my favorite example of that that distance in the novel that we've talked about a few times is the scene where Catherine, young Catherine is telling Nellie that she can never marry Heathcliff because it oh, would be yeah. beneath her. And the description is so muddled that it's not clear if Heathcliff is in the room or if he's standing right outside the... Well, wherever he is, he can hear her for like the first half of her sentence, right. but then somehow leaves before she manages to say... That she loves that him. She, that she loves him right. and she is him, essentially. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we should give... We should mention the Kate Beaton Wuthering Heights... The series of Kate yeah. Beaton Wuthering Heights comics, which one of them, like, very smartly yeah i had brought up that scene to you mm-hmm. and you had said oh kate beaton did a comic about that exact moment yeah there's a series of six pages worth of comics kate beaton did about wuthering heights right. you should look them up they're very good yeah if you've they, read the book. they help explain some of the they're a charming uh, addition to reading this novel but that that particular scene it, it is funny because she's just mm-hmm. like what is ha- actually happening here why is she saying that in front of him yeah, yeah. how does she not know that he can hear what's going on I, I would be interested to watch a film adaptation of this novel not so much because of scenes like that which you know you can find a way to stage that if you desire sure but more because i it is Im- it is utterly impossible for me to imagine what a no holds barred as true to the text as possible adaptation of this novel would look like on screen, because I don't think you could actually ever get it made. I, I it's impossible for me to imagine that any of the um, any of the film versions of this novel to date have have dealt with everything Heathcliff undertakes in as brutal and um, 
uh, unrelenting a manner as he's depicted in the novel. It's impossible to imagine that being committed to screen and getting any kind of funding or audience. I I have seen a few Wuthering Heights adaptions. I can't. It's been years. Um, I don't remember them being quite as actually violent um, like the novel is. But I think, and this is something that we should probably talk about, um, the reason why a lot of people have this perception of the relationship between Catherine and Heathcliff being a romantic one, I think largely comes from movies, which you're right, they can't depict... I mean, you could make a movie that stays faithful to the book, but it, it probably wouldn't be as popular as a more diluted... Um, these days, you know how, where you could do it? You could do it... These days, you could do it as a premium cable miniseries, right? And you'd have to just sell it as something that is as brutal as the book is. Right. You couldn't do it as a two-hour movie. Sure. You, you just couldn't. But, um, so that segue, uh, do you think that this is a romantic novel no and i remember when i was i I do not and i I remember you were mentioning you you have you brought that up a few times as we were reading the book you said it's you know outrageous that people sometimes refer to this as a romantic novel and i was maybe halfway through at the time and i said well you know i under i can understand that perspective there's this sort of uh, tortured kind of epic uh you know um confounded love between these two people and you said well you just wait and i mean you know the second half of this novel just becomes it's like i mean honestly to me it was you 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 described it as being comical at times to me it was less comical and more almost read like a horror novel well yeah i i mean you have ghosts you have pick up on the ghost stuff as much um the the scene where lockwood a few scenes sure but, but i didn't pick it up as it i was expecting based on some of your comments and some of what i've seen about the novel for that to be ongoing but it, it sort of almost disappears from the novel except for some bookends sure well the implication at the end i think is that since Catherine's death heathcliff has yeah. in some form yeah. been haunted which like in and you know one sense kind of explains why he is as demented as he is and then also it's just like oh okay the love of his life potentially just came back to uh, well i don't think it's the perspective of the novel that she actually did do you I don't. I. I don't know. I don't know that the the novel has certainly a lot of the characters, including Nellie, of the narrator, believe that some kind of oh really I mystical. Didn't. No, oh. she. There. There are scenes where she is. Um. She, even though she tries to not let herself be afraid, mm-hmm. she is fearful of some. Oh sure, but that's being fearful at times is different than holding a. Sure. Sustained belief, I, I right? think there's enough. Uh, there are enough aside to make me believe that the characters in the novel are not completely convinced that some kind of su- supernatural element yeah. does not exist. Especially, I mean, she, she says. When, I mean, at, right at the end of the novel, Lockwood kind of makes a joke about leaving the house for whatever ghosts decide to inhabit it, and it's clear that he's just joking around. But then Nellie responds, "No, Mister Lockwood, I believe the dead are at peace." But it is not right to speak of them with levity. Yeah, to me, that doesn't necessarily imply that she doesn't believe in ghosts and, and more that finally everyone can, their restless spirits will yeah, s- stop. That, that could be. But um, yeah, this this novel, I think, in general, is uh, has a lot of horror elements, especially at the beginning. Um, but I would love to see the movie. I thought especially in the second half. Um, 
Sure. Especially throughout the entire entire novel. <laughs> it's ha- definitely horrific. Yeah. But the, the supernatural elements, the stuff that we actually think of when you say that this is a horror story. Um, I want to watch the m- movie that ha- that does Heathcliff's death as it is written in the novel where he essentially commits suicide and then they find his corpse and it's like grinning i the, couldn't stop oh thinking my god about what a great image oh it yeah. was terrifying yeah, yeah i want to watch that movie um well we we've talked i mean i don't expect this movie to be the movie we're about to watch to be that but we're planning on soon watching andrea arnold's adaptation of weathering heights she was the director of uh American Honey, which we saw when it was in theaters early or last year, I guess, and really loved, um, and and has directed a few other movies for which she's she is beloved, right. and um, so she adapted this this novel, and I'm I'm curious to watch hers, although I don't I don't expect it to be <laughs> to be the version the potential version we've been talking. Who knows? About. Yeah. Um, uh, one. Oh, one of the reasons I don't expect that is because the tagline of the film is "Love is a force of nature," and the cover the cover. I mean the the poster looks like it how all of these movies always look. Sure. You know, they look they staking out the ground that I mean she's she's a, a quite a fascinating director so I don't expect the movie to be fluff but uh you know. Um yeah, so I settled it this movie this book is not romantic. It is not except, <laughs> Good job you did it. You solved um, it. Kathy Inherington kind of redeem that that that's the real the real romance to me but i mean any any evidence against it the evidence against it being romantic solely or not solely but strongly rests with the is isabel or isabella Mm. character who is kind of the stand-in for uh the a fan of the byronic hero in that she has this Oh, Im- yeah, image she, of Heathcliff that right. is just so painfully ruined. Deluded, yeah. yeah and yeah. it's just... Um, I mean, her her character, the, the way her character tre- was treated was really the point at which the novel became truly brutal to me. Um, followed up by then how young Catherine is, is treated. Right. That that arc from, from Isabella to Catherine was, was just excruciating. Well, I'm glad that... After coming off this uh, book about domestic violence and revenge and <laughs> evil spirits, that we will next month be reading a book know, about a book religious about persecution, uh, yeah. persecution yeah. and torture. Well, do you want to do you want to move on to that? I mean, sure. I think it's safe to say we both enjoyed Wuthering Heights yes. and, and would recommend it. Yes, and I would uh, especially. I mean, I would recommend it to anybody. But even if you like me, read it years ago, um, it definitely warrants revisiting um if just so you can see what your reaction is as an adult versus mm-hmm. what you re- so. remember your reaction being mm-hmm. so g- pencil it in that you have to reread this book in 10 15 years yeah, right. <laughs> to see how you feel as oh i'm 50 and this book is the most romantic thing i've ever read <laughs> that's you yeah in oh, the future sure. oh, I see. Okay. anyway you want to talk about silence yeah so uh silence our book for february is uh, it is a novel by Shusaku Endo. It is widely regarded as a, uh, a modern classic of Japanese literature. It's a historical novel that tells the story of the uh, so-called hidden Christians in Japan. And we are going to be reading it for February. It was recently adapted into a novel, or I'm sorry, a movie by Martin Scorsese, if you want to check that out. 
Um, so that's for next month. And you can find us on the internet at idlebookclub.com. We're on Twitter at idlebookclub. You can send us email about the book we just read or the book we're about to read at books at idlethumbs.net. And that's it. We'll see you next time. Bye.